0: I want to be a star. I want to be a star as well.
1: I want to be a binary star with you. I want to be a Death Star.
2: I want to be the Doctor.
0: I want to be on Mars. Unless it's like Waters of Mars. In which case I don't want to be on Mars.
3: I want to be the center of the universe.
1: I want to be the main event in an event horizon. I want to be out there amongst the stars exploring.
0: I want to view celestial bodies from a highly advanced radio telescope.
3: I want to be on the Jodcast.
4: The Jodcast, visible from space, with Megan Argo, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, and Ian Morrison. Jodcast, March 2010 edition Hello and welcome to the Jodcast for March 2010. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me this time is Jen Gupta. Hi Jen.
2: Hi Stuart. Hi everyone.
4: So coming up in the show this time we learn all about supernova from Professor Mike Barlow and hear what you can see in the night sky in March. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
3: In the news this month, the causes of type Ia supernovae, the molecular gas content of early galaxies, and emission from methane in the atmosphere of an extrasolar planet. Supernova explosions are initially classified by the chemical signatures in their optical spectra. While some are caused by the catastrophic collapse of stars more than eight times as massive as the Sun, others are thought to be caused by white dwarfs, Stars like the Sun, which have already evolved off the main sequence, and shrunk in size. Called Type Ia supernovae, such explosions are thought to have a fixed brightness, allowing them to be used as standard candles to measure distances to galaxies and test cosmological models of the expansion of the universe. There are two possible models for these Type Ia supernovae, both involving the explosion of white dwarf stars. Of these theories, the one thought to be the most likely involves the accumulation of material from a companion star onto the surface of a white dwarf. When the mass of the white dwarf exceeds a certain limit, known as the Chandrasekhar limit, it becomes unstable and explodes. The second theory is that the explosion is caused by the merger of two white dwarfs in orbit around each other. While the first theory was thought to be the most likely explanation, research published in Nature on the 18th of February suggests that the second model may, in fact, be far more likely than was previously assumed. The X-ray signatures of these two different explosion mechanisms are quite different, with far more pre-explosion X-ray emission expected from an accreting white dwarf than from the merger scenario. So two researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics in Germany used data from the Chandra X-ray Observatory and the Spitzer Space Telescope to examine several nearby galaxies. The ongoing accretion process prior to a supernova explosion would generate significant amounts of X-ray emission detectable by Chandra while a binary white dwarf system heading towards a merger would not generate such emission. The infrared luminosity of a particular galaxy, taken from the Spitzer data, gives an estimate of the number of white dwarfs in the galaxy, leading to an estimate of the expected X-ray luminosity if accretion is the dominant mechanism. The astronomers examined observations of five nearby elliptical galaxies, as well as the bulge M31, the nearest spiral galaxy to the Milky Way, and found in all cases the predicted X-ray luminosity was between 30 and 50 times lower than expected if the accretion scenario was the main cause of Type Ia supernovae. The results imply that, at least in elliptical galaxies, the dominant mechanism behind Type Ia supernovae is white dwarf merger, rather than accretion. The story is slightly different in spiral galaxies, however, where clouds of neutral gas and thick dust lanes typical of star formation in spiral galaxies could be obscuring the X-ray radiation created in the pre-explosion phase of the accretion scenario. These new results may have implications for cosmological studies, since the assumed standard luminosity of type Ia supernovae is used to calculate the expansion velocity of the universe. Since the two merging stars may have slightly different masses in different systems, the total explosion luminosity may not be as standard as was thought. A long-standing question in the study of star formation is whether the process was more efficient in the early universe than it is today. Stars form through the collapse of clouds of cold gas. As the collapse progresses, the core of the cloud gets denser and hotter until nuclear fusion begins and a star is born. In the local universe, however, cold molecular gas is relatively rare, so star formation occurs slowly. The Milky Way forms new stars at a rate of only a few per year. More distant galaxies form stars at a much higher rate, but in order to determine whether this is due to a more efficient star formation process or more ready supply of molecular gas, it is necessary to investigate their gas content. Star formation within these clouds is very difficult to observe directly since the gas absorbs much of the visible light produced by young protostars. Once they begin to shine, the radiation pressure of the young stars begins to dispel the surrounding gas and the star becomes visible. The gas itself is hard to detect, but some molecules, such as carbon monoxide, are visible through the radiation they emit at infrared wavelengths. A team of researchers used the Plateau de Burr interferometer to examine the gas content of two samples of galaxies, which are so distant that we see them as they were when the universe was only 40 and 24% of its current age. Because they are so distant, the infrared radiation from the carbon monoxide molecules in these galaxies is shifted to the part of the spectrum where wavelengths are measured in millimetres. Using new receivers recently installed on the antennas of the interferometer at the Plateau de Beurre in France, Linda Tocconi and colleagues imaged the molecular gas content of these galaxies. Many previous studies have focused on highly extreme examples, galaxies forming stars at very high rates due to powerful central black holes, or systems where galaxies are merging. But Tocconi's team studied more modest examples, likely to be more typical of normal star-forming galaxies. Published in the journal Nature on February 11th, Their results show that the distant star-forming galaxies were in fact gas-rich, containing 3 to 10 times more cold gas as a fraction of the galaxy's total mass than the equivalent galaxies in the local universe today. Their results also show that the fraction of gas does not vary greatly with redshift. The galaxies in the more distant sample, seen when the universe was just 3 billion years old, contained 44% molecular gas, while those in the closer sample, seen when the universe was 5.5 billion years old, contained 34% gas. The results also suggest that there is a mechanism replenishing the molecular gas in these galaxies. The rate at which stars are forming can be used to estimate how long it would take to use up the entire supply of molecular gas. The timescale turns out to be less than the time interval between the two samples, suggesting that either the gas is replenished, or that the two galaxy populations studied have experienced different evolutionary paths. In just 15 years, several hundred planets have been discovered around stars other than the Sun using a variety of techniques. Even without the ability to directly image these other worlds, some of their properties can be determined. Most extrasolar planets found so far are massive gas giants orbiting close to their parent stars, since these are the types of planets that the detection methods are most sensitive to. As techniques develop and improve, astronomers are finding out more and more about these other worlds, including the composition of their atmospheres. The chemical makeup of planetary atmospheres can provide clues to a whole variety of processes, including both geological and biological effects. But often our own atmosphere gets in the way, hampering attempts to detect the spectral signatures of certain molecules. To get a full picture of what is going on often requires both ground based and space based observations. Satellite observations have previously detected the absorption signatures of water, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and methane in the atmospheres of two so-called hot Jupiters, planets with masses similar to, or greater than, that of Jupiter, but orbiting far closer to their parent star. In research published in Nature on the 4th of February, a team led by Mark Swain of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California have detected the signature of emission from methane in the atmosphere of one particular exoplanet, known as HD 189733b. Using the NASA Infrared Telescope Facility, located on Mauna Kea, the team discovered an unexpectedly strong emission feature at a wavelength of 3.25 microns, corresponding to the presence of methane in the planet's atmosphere. This is not the first time that methane fluorescence has been seen, but it is the first time that it has been detected in the spectrum of an exoplanet. It has previously been seen in our own solar system, in the atmospheres of Jupiter, Saturn and Titan, although HD 189733 b is much closer to its parent star and so offers a chance to study a planetary atmosphere under very different physical conditions. And finally. On February the 4th, new images of Pluto were released, showing a surprisingly dynamic surface. Actually taken in 2002 and 2003, the new images from the Hubble Space Telescope aren't sharp enough to pick out individual surface features, even Hubble lacks a resolution to image Pluto in that amount of detail, but they do reveal a varied surface with patches that have changed in brightness considerably since the previous set of images taken back in 1994. The images suggest that Pluto's surface and atmosphere undergo dramatic seasonal variations. In the nine years since the previous images were taken, Pluto has become significantly redder, and the northern hemisphere has increased in brightness. The changes in surface brightness are likely caused by the seasonal effects of surface ice sublimating at one pole and refreezing on the other, as Pluto moves in its 248-year orbit around the Sun. Observations like this will be used to plan the images taken by the New Horizons probe as it flies past Pluto at high speed in 2015.
4: Thanks for that, Megan. Now, one of the news items that Megan talked about were supernovae, and recently Jen talked to Professor Mike Barlow from University College London to find out more about supernovae.
2: So I'm here today with Professor Mike Barlow from UCL. And your research focuses on evolved stars and supernovae, so stars that are at the end of their lives. So can we start off by talking about supernovae and the reasons that you got into studying these objects?
0: Well, we've been trying to uh, determine whether or not supernovae, in particular supernovae from massive stars at the end of their lives, um, whether those are creating uh, large quantities of dust or not during an explosion.
2: So when we say dust, is this dust like you find on Earth, or is this different kind of...? Yeah,
0: it's similar. It's small particles of silicates or um, carbon or other solid materials. In fact, the Earth itself is made up of uh, what were originally interstellar dust particles, which agglomerated during the formation of the solar system. So we can look out there and we see abundant evidence for there being uh, dust particles everywhere in our galaxy in fact, everywhere in the universe.
2: Okay, and, and this dust is, you think, formed from supernovae?
0: Well, the our past picture of where the dust came from was that it was formed around outflows from cool stars. These are M-supergiants um, like Alpha Orionis, Betelgeuse. It produces dust in its outflow. Or evolved what we call red giant stars, uh, AGB stars. Um, and examples of that are Marasetti which is a pulsating variable star, or a famous carbon star called CW Leo, which is optically invisible, but it's the brightest uh, star in the sky at near-infrared wavelengths. So we've known for quite some time that these um, stars at the endpoints of their lives gently make dust particles. And the picture we had was that um, they were the dominant sources of dust in our galaxy. But we've had to uh, modify our views by... And the fact that when we look uh, to um, very high redshifts, this is where we're getting light coming from way back towards the beginning of the universe. We detect galaxies in the process of forming, which are emitting very strongly in the infrared and submillimeter. And that emission comes from absorption of starlight by dust particles and re-emission in the infrared. And it was a bit of a surprise that we find so strong infrared emission going back to the first scuba detections uh, more than 10 years ago, the model up until then was that the first stars contained very little in the way of heavy elements and therefore very little dust particles which are made of heavy elements. But what we're finding and what people have been finding is that there are very large quantities of dust in these uh, galaxies, and yet some of them were formed only 500 million years after the Big Bang. So... uh, That's led to people thinking, well, at at such um, early stages in the universe, low-mass stars like the sun would not have had time to evolve, to become a red giant. And the only stars which would evolve quickly enough are high-mass stars, stars with masses 10, 20, 30 times the mass of the sun. And um, those stars have a completely different endpoint of their evolution. They explode as supernovae.
2: So maybe we should take a step back and actually explain what a supernova is.
0: Okay, well, there are two types of supernovae. Type 1a supernovae, uh, which come from quite low-mass stars. They're binary systems. They explode. They have a very um, predictable maximum light. And they're used a lot for cosmological studies of the expansion of the universe because they're standard candles. But the type we're talking about today are type 2 supernovae, which are also called core collapse supernovae. And this is when a star of, of high mass, more than 10 solar masses, has exhausted all its nuclear fuel and it can lo- no longer support itself against gravity. At that point, it, it collapse uh, just into a very dense core. There's a bounce and the star explodes and leaves nothing... Well, it leaves a pulsar behind. And of course, here at Manchester, uh, pulsar studies are, are very prominent. They're looking at the a small remnant left by the uh, core collapse supernova. But most of the mass that was in the star has been ejected into the interstellar medium.
2: So how do you find supernovae? Is it a case of monitoring certain galaxies to find these brightness, or is it just by luck?
0: You find them in nearby galaxies um, by monitoring. There are more and more programs where they have wide-field monitoring, imaging of the sky. They observe large parts of the sky every night and compare them with previous images of the field uh, in computational space, and then they will pick out uh, supernovae. But it's it's a hit or miss that we're not catching every supernovae at present, but every year there are more and more supernovae being reported. So the studies that we're doing are looking at nearby supernovae to see whether these nearby supernovae are producing quantities of dust that we infer must be needed in the far-away uh, galaxies, in order to explain how much dust is present in those galaxies.
2: So nearby supernovae, is that in our galaxy or in some galaxies close by? No,
0: the last supernova that went off in our own galaxy was 400 years ago. Wow! A big spiral galaxy like our own ought to produce a supernova about every 30 or 40 years. And yet, in Milky Way, we had about three between about 1570 and 1700. tychos supernova, Kepler's supernova... And a famous radio uh, source called Caspia A, Cass A, which is inferred to have gone off around about the 1680s. But since then, there's been recently a report that a supernova towards the galactic center is expanding at a rate which implies that it went off at about 1890. But there was so much uh, obscuration between us and that region that it was never seen. Similarly with Cass A, it was never seen by anybody uh, at the time, because there was a lot of interstellar dust obscuration.
2: That's impressive that we can still see these supernovae so long after they've gone off.
0: Yes. In fact, uh, there was a recent uh, paper published in Nature where they used the light echoes uh, propagating through the interstellar medium in order to infer what class of supernova casse was. This is because the interstellar medium is full of gas and dust. When you have a bright flash, the flash Propagates through the interstellar medium, and some fraction of it gets reflected off the dust particles in the interstellar medium and towards us. Very, very faint, but if you um, use a large telescope and take a long, deep spectrum of one of these light echoes, you can actually pick up the faint echo of the original explosion of the supernova. So you get a spectrum of the supernova 400 years after it happened. And they did this on Cass A, and they found it was a type II supernova, as people had expected. So
2: supernovae have a quite distinct spectrum. That's how you distinguish them from other... Yeah, they have
0: very broad emission lines because the gas is expanding so fast. It broadens the uh, the lines that are present and they're unmistakable when you get a a supernova spectrum.
2: You said that the Milky Way has quite a low supernova rate.
0: Yeah, well, we think maybe we're missing a lot of them because of obscuring dust. We're sitting here in the plane of our galaxy and when we look towards the rest of the Milky Way, unless we're within a few uh, thousand light years, then the obscuration by dust can be quite significant. The Stuff on the far side of the galaxy is going to be missed entirely. And there are many regions in the plane, like Cygnus or um, the southern regions of the galaxy, where we might just miss a supernova. We think that it should be producing a supernova once every 50 years, yeah. but we're not catching them all.
2: Do you find more supernovae in spiral or elliptical galaxies?
0: Well, it depends what type of supernova. I mentioned the type 1a supernova cosmic candles. They come from both ellipticals and spirals because they're low-mass stars. and Elliptical galaxies contain lots of low-mass stars. But ellipticals don't have high-mass stars anymore. They've finished that stage of their evolution. And uh, we don't find type 2 supernova, the core collapse type. They only come from uh, spiral galaxies and for what we call dwarf irregular galaxies.
2: And I know that you've been involved with Herschel, the Herschel space telescope, and those results were first released in December I think to the public. So now we can finally talk about some Herschel yes. science if you. The European can tell us Space anything.
0: Agency um, had embargoed the reporting of results until they could present them all in one place and they did that in Madrid just before Christmas. And there was a two-day meeting where many new Herschel results were presented and there were a lot of very spectacular results being uh, reported. Ourselves, we presented some results on uh, supernovae. We're, we're studying, in fact, CASA with Herschel, and we're getting images of it uh, with two of the instruments that are on board Herschel. One is called PAX, which is a imaging spectrometer, which covers the far-infrared region, and the other is called SPIRE, which is a UK-led instrument which covers um, the region starting at 200 microns and going out to 650 microns.
2: So microns, these are micrometers? These are wavelengths
0: of the radiation. Yeah. Uh, we also call that the microwave or submillimeter region. At the end, round about a millimeter is the region where your microwave in the kitchen is emitting strongly. But we're looking at somewhat short, uh, shorter wavelengths than that. So we imaged Cassiopeia A at six different wavelengths. And we've formed a picture of what's happening. The reason that we're interested in Cassay is it's a nearby supernova remnant. It's only 10,000 light-years away. And um, we want to find out whether there are new dust particles present in the supernova that were synthesized during the expansion of the ejector. Because as the ejector from the supernova expands, it also cools. And at some point, the gas can become cool enough and clumpy enough that you can get small dust particles condensing within it. So, the sort of the big question is, are there large quantities of dust particles, uh, large enough to explain what's happening in the early universe, or are they just producing small quantities of dust particles? Well, we're not yet uh, finally there. We've, we only obtained the uh, most recent set of data uh, two weeks before Christmas, and we're currently heavily involved in analyzing the data sets. So we've been able to show the images, but the quantitative analysis is still underway. So I can't yet tell you whether or not there are large quantities or small quantities. But hopefully within the next couple of months, we'll be able to uh, provide an answer to that.
2: What's the advantage of using different wavelengths with Herschel? Uh,
0: Well, Herschel looks at regions where you're completely uh, unobscured by dust, but it's also regions where, as I mentioned, dust particles re-emit radiation that they're absorbing in the ultraviolet and the optical. So we're getting a, a completely transparent view of the universe, but we're also seeing one of its dominant components, which is the dust component of the universe. There are two types of interstellar matter. One is gas particles like hydrogen, helium, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. And the other is where some of the heavy elements like oxygen, silicon, iron, carbon, have condensed into small particles. Well, gas can be quite elusive when you're trying to measure how much is present If it decides not to emit, if there's no excitation mechanism, you can have a great deal of difficulty in determining how much gas is present. But dust particles really can't hide from you. They absorb uh, optical or uh, ultraviolet radiation, and they'll always then re-emit in the infrared. And so you will always detect them when you go to the infrared or submillimeter wavelengths. So you can always determine exactly how much dust is present. And that's not always the case for gas. So that's why we're drawn to, to measure dust, because it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and it emits strongly. I could also mention the, the observations we've been doing with the Spitzer Space Observatory on supernovae. Yep. Two days after Herschel was launched on May the 16th, the Spitzer Space Observatory used up the last of its liquid helium. It had been launched by NASA in um, 2003, And it was another infrared observatory, but observing at slightly shorter wavelengths, going from about uh, 3 microns uh, to 160 microns, whereas Herschel starts at 70 microns and goes to longer wavelengths. So they're very complementary, but unfortunately they didn't overlap in time. But with Spitzer, we were studying supernovae that had gone off in nearby galaxies, and we were observing the first few thousand days after they were exploding, In order to see whether there was real-time evidence of new dust particles appearing. And indeed, we did see in quite a few supernovae, after about three or four hundred days, we began to see the telltale signatures of dust emission at uh, near-infrared and mid-infrared wavelengths. So we could confirm that supernovae were making dust, um, and we could also measure how much dust uh, those new supernovae were making. In about 50% of the cases, we find that um, a few hundreds of a solar mass maybe or a few thousands of a solar mass were being made by the supernovae. But interestingly it's tantalizingly close to explaining how much dust we see in the early universe, but not quite enough. So our current view is that if supernovae in young galaxies are similar to the ones that we see in nearby galaxies today, then massive star supernovae may not be the source of the dust particles that we see in those galaxies.
2: Do you have any idea what else could be forming this dust?
0: Not really. <laughs> um, it's um, it's a bit of a mystery. There are precursor stages to massive star supernovae. By precursor, I mean the stage of evolution immediately before the star explodes, where we think that extensive mass loss may be occurring. And there's a few objects in our own galaxy which are in this phase. There's one famous object called Eta Carina, which is a, believed to be a star with a mass of about 150 solar masses, which is very strongly emitting in the infrared, because it had a big outburst in 1848 where it ejected uh, a shell of dust and gas, which was sufficiently uh, massive to obscure the star itself. So Ida Carina rose to become a third magnitude object in 1848. And, um, no, it, it, it but you know, it was brighter than that. It became a first magnitude object and um, it was one of the brightest stars in the southern hemisphere for about 10 or 20 years. But then the shell that it was ejected, uh, the dust in it began to obscure the star and it faded to fainter than six magnitude.
2: Do you know what the limit is that the human eye can see? The human eye
0: can see in a very dark site down to about six magnitude. Okay. But today um, Ida Carina is beginning a slow rise again. Because the shell of dust that it ejected is expanding, and as it expands, the um, obscuration is decreasing very gradually. So it's beginning a slow recovery back to the, uh, the brightness it might have had before the 1848 event.
2: That's very impressive that you can kind of use data from 1848. That's yes. That's
0: um, there was a famous astronomer called um, John Herschel who <laughs> was based uh, down in Cape Town during that period who followed the evolution of the outburst in in great detail. So uh, we have a great deal of information about the 1848 outburst. There was a further one in the 1860s, I believe, but not quite as bright as the 1848.
2: Well, it sounds like you're working in a very fascinating field, and thank you for taking time to talk to us about it.
4: Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for that, Jen. Now, we get to the point in the show where we round up all the odds and ends, things that don't fit in elsewhere. And Jen, there's been some more news about your favourite little rover, that's Spirit, currently sat stationary on Mars. Would you like to tell us what's happened?
2: Yeah, so as you might remember, NASA have given up on Spirit moving around the surface of Mars anymore. So Spirit is staying staying where it is, but still collecting data. And one thing that they can do now that Spirit isn't moving is NASA can track... the, The motion of Spirit will only be because of the motion of Mars. So NASA can track the signals from Spirit.
4: So this is a scene from the Earth, you mean? Yeah. The motion's only because yeah. of Mars moving.
2: Yeah, and what happens, Mars doesn't move in a completely straight orbit. It kind of wobbles as it goes around. And how much it wobbles will depend on whether the core is liquid or solid. So now NASA can, they're going to track the motion of Spirit, and this will hopefully tell us something about what the core of Mars is like.
4: So this is using radio receivers on the ground that would the, the deep space network that would normally yeah. pick up the signal and yeah. uh, presumably looking at the Doppler shift.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is something I would never have thought of doing this with Spirit. It's quite a strange thing. I mean, the the thing the analogy that they give is if you spin a hard boiled egg and spin a raw egg, they have different motions.
4: Yeah. If you so if you spin one and then just momentarily stop it. The yeah. the ones with soft-boiled insides, the, the insides will still be rotating and make yeah. the egg start to t- rotate again, whereas the hard-boiled one will, will stay stopped. It's always good when you can get space missions aware when, when something about them stops working, you're still able to find some new science that you can do with them.
2: Yeah, and I think the, these rovers just won't give up. I mean, they've lasted far longer than they were meant to, and they just keep on giving to us. So,
4: Well, the warranty they... was only 90 days, so they're doing <laughs> extremely well.
2: And let's hope that they keep on giving us a lot of data in the future.
4: Now, coming back closer to the Earth, Japanese astronaut Soichi Noguchi, who's on board the International Space Station at the moment, seems to be benefiting from their new internet connection and has been posting images from orbit looking down at the Earth and posting them directly online via TwitPic and putting updates on Twitter. And it's been remarkable to see some of the images coming down in very shortly after having been taken. And there's a, a really nice picture of a moonrise which has the Earth with the atmosphere, and then by moving it, you see the moon just peeking out from behind um, the Earth's atmosphere there. That's a really nice image that he took.
2: Yeah, I've got a few favourites. One of them is of the Space Shuttle Endeavour when it was up there recently. He got some amazing photos of it while it was there and also when it was undocking.
4: I think it was undocking. Undocking,
2: yeah, and heading back to Earth. And the other one that was posted very recently is of a glacier somewhere, and it's just amazing how much detail you can see.
4: There's been quite a few images of, of glaciers it is shown. There's yeah. um, some in New Zealand and I think the most recent one I saw was Patagonia.
2: I think that's the one I was looking at.
4: There's also there's an entire island in the Pacific that seems to be covered, is volcanic and covered in glaciers, which is amazing to see. Apparently it's quite difficult to, to spot.
2: Yeah, and there's some pictures of an active volcano as well up on there.
4: And there's even some some family portrait type photos <laughs> yeah. showing other astronauts playing guitars and things on board the space station with the Earth behind them, which is fairly impressive stuff.
2: And I think he's also taking requests, so if you do want to see your area from space, you can uh, tweet at him, and he'll hopefully take a photo for you.
4: Now, earlier we were talking about using Spirit to monitor the motion of Mars in its orbit, and orbits are something that are quite fun to play with, as Jen and I found out (laughs) earlier on today. We discovered the Solar System Simulator, which is a flash-based game i guess oh, yeah. you would call it where you set up a solar system with a few planets and moons and maybe comets and then you you set their speeds and directions and then you can press go and see how that solar system evolves with time and, and we Stuart
2: kept... manages to crash something into something every single time
4: nearly yeah i don't think <laughs> yeah. you would want me setting up your solar system for no. you
2: moons into planets planets into suns comets going everywhere it's, it's remarkably
4: <laughs> difficult to set up a stable <laughs> solar system
2: especially when you've got four stars in the middle of it
4: yeah that was pretty difficult and moving on from simulated planets to real planets we had an email from Kavstav Bhattacharya who asked us to mention that the West of London Astronomical Society is putting on its annual Planet Watch event at Royslip Lido in northwest London and that will be on between March the 19th and 21st this year They have a website where you can go and register to attend the event, which is free, and that's at planetwatch.eventbrite.com, and that's Eventbrite spelt E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E. Now, more things that you can participate in this month. Jen, you've got some information about Globe at Night.
2: Yeah, Globe at Night is an annual event that takes place, and it monitors how dark your sky is where you are. So the idea is that everyone goes out all around the world and look at the constellation Orion, one of the most easy to recognise constellations in the sky. And they have various um, sky charts which have fainter and fainter stars on them and you match up what you can see with one of these charts and you send it in and they can map where light pollution is. Last year they had a record 15,000 measurements sent in from all over the world and you can hear more about this in the 3rd of February edition of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast and that's the 3rd of February this year.
4: And while you're out there taking part in that campaign, you'll want to know what you can see in the night sky. So here's Ian Morrison with the night sky for March
1: 2010. So let's think about the night sky for March 2010. Well, of course, as the sun sets, you have a lovely skyscape to the south, with Orion just a little bit to the west of south. Below to its left is the very bright star Sirius in Canis Major. And up to its left are the heavenly twins, Gemini. High overhead is our with the bright star, somewhat yellowish, Capella. But as the night moves on, other constellations become apparent, particularly Leo the Lion, is rising at about nine o'clock in the evening, and seen over in the west. And I'll come back to that when we talk about some of the highlights. And getting high overhead is Ursa Majoris, Ursa Major, the great bear, with that very nice asterism we might call it the plough. The Americans call it the Big Dipper, after the ladle that the farmer's wife used to use to ladle out the soup at lunchtime to the farmhands. So let's have a look at the planets this month. And in fact, it's quite a good month for planets, because in principle, if you take the beginning and the end of the month, you can see all of the ones we usually talk about. Now, Jupiter... Pass behind the sun on the 28th of February. It reappears, however, in the pre-dawn sky at the very end of the month. And on the very last day of March, it'll rise about 50 minutes before the sun. And if you've got a pair of binoculars and a very good low eastern horizon, you might just pick it up at magnitude minus two. But to be honest, it's probably best to wait a month or two when it's a bit higher in the sky before it gets light. Well, Saturn is now coming to perhaps the best few months of the year to see it. It's rising by 8 p.m. on the 1st of March. In fact, that's along with a a full moon. And it can be seen at magnitude plus 0.6. That's not too as bright as it sometimes is, because, of course, the rings are almost edge on, as we shall see. And you can see it for much of the night. It reaches opposition, and that's when it's roughly due south at midnight. The Earth is between the Sun and Saturn and that is on march the 21st and so it rises about sunset and if you think about that seeing that's the uh, spring equinox then that's probably what you might expect um the angular size of this because it's a long way away stays pretty constant that's at 19.5 arc seconds and the extent of the rings is 44 arc seconds not far off the angular size of jupiter the ring system's very close to where john in fact it's four degrees at the beginning of the month it has been less than that but it's actually going to reduce again because of the positions of saturn and the earth in their paths around the sun and it's going to drop to three degrees by the end of the month and by mid-april it'll be down to just 1.7 degrees so the rings are getting thinner at the present time but then they will gradually begin to open out for the next many years and uh, in fact it's the first time in fifteen years that we've been able to see the northern side of the rings, so that's something to be looking out for in the next month or so. Well, Mercury passes behind the sun on the fourteenth of March, but then, because it goes round quite quickly, reappears again in the twilight sky along with Venus during the last week of March and I'll come back to that in one of the highlights. But you might just spot it with binoculars on the 22nd, about 20 minutes after sunset. You've got to have a pretty good low western horizon. It'll then be about 9 degrees below Venus and just 3 degrees above the horizon. But I'll come back to Mercury a little bit later on. Well, you can hardly fail to spot Mars in the sky. It's fairly high in the southeast after sunset It went through opposition at the end of January. It'll be well up in the south and highest in the sky, about 8.30 in the evening. Sadly, the disk is getting smaller. It drops from 12 to 9 arc seconds during the month. But under good seeing conditions, a small telescope should still maybe see some of the more prominent features and perhaps the polar cap. On December 20th last year, when it was in Leo, it began what is called its retrograde motion. It moved back out of Leo and into Cancer, where it is now. It continues to move westwards into Cancer until March the 8th, and then it resumes its eastern track across the skies. So that so-called retrograde motion is because the Earth has been overtaking Mars on the inside track. Well, I mentioned Venus. Uh, during March, it becomes prominent in the evening sky as it climbs ever higher in the sky. It has a magnitude of about minus 3.9. And that actually, any time you see Venus, it's pretty well at minus 3.9 or minus 4. And that's because the apparent area we see stays pretty constant. When it's near to us and hence large, there's only a thin crescent that's illuminated. On the other hand, when it's on the far side of the sun, and relatively small in angular size, most of the um, disk is illuminated. So the apparent brightness stays pretty constant. An angular size at the moment of about 10 arc seconds, because it's well over the far side of the sun. Okay, so there are the um, planets. What about some highlights of the month? Well, I mentioned Leo. If you look towards Leo, perhaps about 10 o'clock at night, maybe 9 o'clock towards the end of March, you get really quite a nice skyscape. Leo's in the centre of the field. Uh, down to the lower left of Venus, sort of below the hind legs, you'll see a bright object, and that's Saturn, which is in the constellation of Virgo. And up to the right, you'll see Mars, which is in the constellation of Cancer, the crab. However, last month I mentioned that you could actually spot the brightest of the asteroids, Vesta. Not the largest, but the brightest. The largest is, in fact, Ceres. And on the 16th of February, I had my astronomy class in Wimslow nearby, and we actually looked at Vesta as it passed between the star at the the base of the neck of Leo the Lion, Algieba, and the star quite close to it called 40 low in us, and it literally was in line between the two and so incredibly easy to pick up during this month it continues marching across the sky across the sickle up to the top right hand star of the arc of the of the head of the lion sometimes called the sickle and if you go to the night sky page I put a plot which might give you a chance to pick it out it's the fifth brightest object within the sickle there are only four stars brighter so there's a good chance even if you don't know quite which one it is that you will actually see it if you just look with your binoculars around the sickle i mentioned that venus and mercury are both appearing in the evening sky and on the 31st of march the last day they're actually quite close they're just 3.3 degrees apart and you have to look about 30 minutes after sunset Um, in fact they'll stay around that uh, for the next week or so, and really, right up to April the 4th, when they're just three degrees apart, you'll have a good chance of seeing them in the twilight sky. Binoculars will probably help to pick out Mercury, but if you've got a good low western horizon, Venus should be fairly easy to spot. The Hyades and the Pleiades cluster are well up after sunset. Uh, They're the two nearest open clusters to us, Um, The Pleiades is one of the youngest open clusters and is dominated by blue stars, which are quite young. We think the Pleiades can't be more than about 100 million years old. None of them have yet evolved into what are called red giant stars. That actually helps to determine the age. Uh, It appears to be passing through what's called a reflection nebula, um, a cloud of dust which is scattering some of the blue light from the stars. So on photographs, it looks very very nice it's very hard to spot that though visually you can make out a rather darker region where there isn't nebulosity so you sort of see it in sort of in reverse Um, the closer Hyades cluster is older does contain some evolved stars red giants but the thing that's prominent there is the star Aldebaran the eye of Taurus the bull. It's actually not part of the Hyades Cluster. It's about halfway between us and the cluster. And whereas all the cluster stars are moving sort of up a bit to the left, Aldebaran is actually moving down towards the the south, lower down in the sky. So it's not part of it. You might just try, with a small telescope, to observe a white dwarf star this month. Um, Again, not long after sunset, in the constellation of Eridanus, you find a star called Omicron 2, and that's sort of to the right of Rigel. And if you can pick that with binoculars, you may well be able to spot a a white ninth magnitude companion, and that is a white dwarf. It's actually probably the easiest white dwarf to spot, given a pair of 8x40 or perhaps 10x50 binoculars. And again, I put a little chart on the Night Sky page to help you find it. And finally, I mentioned Sirius earlier. Below Sirius, about one binocular field below, and a touch to the left, is a very nice open cluster called M41. Because it's low in the sky, we tend not to look at it very often, but it's well worth it because amongst all the blue stars, the bright blue stars in the cluster, there is in fact one very nice prominent red giant star. It makes a very nice colour contrast. So, very easy to find. Just fine, Sirius with binoculars, just drop gently downwards about one field width. Perhaps if you have Sirius right at the top, you might see M41 at the very bottom of the field of view. Nice thing to look at. Okay. well finally, let's say something as I try to do now each month for those that live in the southern hemisphere. After sunset, which is actually relatively early down in, let's say, South Africa, um, the Milky Way is running basically up from just to the left of due south. So if you look due south, a bit to the left, you'll see the Milky Way running up towards the zenith in the sky. And there's some very bright stars there. Not far from the horizon is Alpha Centauri, often called Rigel Kent. That's at sort of magnitude 0.01, so that's fairly bright. And with Beta Centauri, those are the pointers that point up to the Southern Cross, which is just above them to the left. If you move higher into the sky and a little bit to the right-hand side of due south, you come to the constellation of Carina, the Keel, part of what used to be called Argo Navis, and it's been split into two constellations, Vela the Sails and Carina the Keel. The Keel is the, sort of the right-hand one. And the bright star at the top of that is the star Canopus. It's a very interesting star. It's an F type giant star, yellowish, but basically it looks white. And because it's a very rare type, it's very hard to judge how bright it actually is, how 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 much luminosity it has. However, when Hipparchus was able to measure the distances of stars using what's called the parallax method, it was finally discovered that it is about 310 light years away and knowing how far away it is, knowing how bright it appears to it, its so-called apparent magnitude, you can work out its absolute brightness and it's about 15,000 times brighter than our sun. It is in fact one of the brightest stars in the nearby part of our galaxy and in fact Anywhere apart, perhaps, from our own sun, it might well be the brightest star in the sky. We see Sirius somewhat brighter, but that's because Sirius actually is very close to us. Um, it's not nearly as bright as Canopus. Um, one interesting use of Canopus, which, in fact, I had to mention when I was giving a talk about Mars last week, is it is very often used as a navigation beacon, in effect, for spacecraft travelling out through the solar system. The spacecraft are equipped with what are called Canopus star trackers, and they find Canopus, and they also find the sun, and the two give them their orientation, so they can align themselves correctly when, for example, they need to fire little bursts of their rockets to make a so-called mid-course correction. Just have a look at Canopus, 15,000 times brighter than our sun, A good, good bit bigger. In fact, if it were placed at the centre of our solar system, it would extend three-quarters of the way to the orbit of Mercury. Well, happy hunting.
4: Thanks for that, Ian. And we've got to the point in the show where we talk about your feedback that we've had since the last episode. We've had quite a few iTunes reviews, actually, since the last time we checked. We had reviews from John Manifold, Francis Day, Cousin A.V. and House Sparrow. So thank you to all of those people for giving us a review. And thank you also to Doggan McGraw, who mentioned us in his review of Astronomy Cast on the UK iTunes store. So it's always nice to mention us in other people's podcast reviews (laughs) as well.
2: I feel that's kind of cheating.
4: Yeah, just a little bit. And also thanks to Rush Jenkins for his email full of praise
2: for the Jodcast. And over on Twitter... Zasper seemed to appreciate our witty comment last time about red shirts on away missions. And in the forum, Earth Unit wants to know how I know about red shirts on away missions. Earth Unit says, uh, apparently I'm far too young to know of such things. Is there a TARDIS at Jodrell or has someone been telling scary stories? <laughs> so maybe we should explain why, why we chose that. Um, Adam has been rewatching the original series. Adam,
4: who is presented last time yes. and does lots of editing these days.
2: Yeah, so he, he's he been watching the original series of Star Trek and has been noting down how many people of each colour shirt die on each episode. He's so. been
4: watching from the first episode, the pilot episode as well, yeah. I think, hasn't he?
2: So you can follow him on Twitter. I think he's using the hashtag TOSscore. Yeah, I think that's it. I
4: think that's right. And talking of sci-fi and our knowledge or lack of knowledge of them, there was a comment from Rapid Eye who told us about the film Meteor, which he'd been watching on the Sci-Fi channel, and said that he'd seen several mentions of Jodrell Bank in the film, and he said it was a horrible, terrible, awful movie. So, of course, seeing that wonderful review from Rapid Eye, Jen immediately went out and bought the film.
2: Yes, I managed to find it for pound eighty on the HMV website. I mean, any film that has the description that it stars Sean Connery as the brooding anti-war astrophysicist hero, I mean, you can't, you can't not want <laughs> to buy that.
4: So, unfortunately, we're all going to be subjected to watching this film and just seeing how bad it really is. Yeah,
2: maybe it will spawn a, a review section on the podcast
4: you never know it could do now if you have any feedback for us remember you can always get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net
2: on the forum at forum.jodcast.net
4: we're on youtube still at youtube.com slash jodcast
2: we're on facebook at jodcast.net slash facebook
4: and on twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast
2: and we haven't had any post for a while so if you really want to send something to us in real life the address is on (laughs) you saying that twitter
4: isn't real life
2: (laughs) no but the address is on the website
4: <laughs> right and once again thanks for, to everyone for their feedback and that brings us to the end of the show so it just leaves us to say thank you to mike barlow for allowing us to interview him thanks to the friends of david alt for taking part in the intro and outro, and the editors this time were adam Averson, chris tibbs and mark perver so until next time jot on bye, bye.
0: I want to be under a clear sky.
1: I want to be the dark side of the moon. I want to find out if the moon is made of cheese. I want to be a gas giant. I want to be whiteless.
4: I want to be classified as a planet again. I want to be a
1: stargazer.
2: I want to be in a spaceship.
1: I want to be a supernova. I want to be NGC-2264. I want to be a globular cluster. And I want to be the best astronomer anyone has ever been. Whatever you want to be in life, you want to be with the Jodcast.